Anybody know the Sadducee song? Anybody want to out themselves? I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I'm seeing no nods. <laughs> I don't want to be a Sadducee, because the Sadducee is... Thank you. Because the Sadducee is sad, you see. Okay, pretend that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> first, first century Judaism, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, there's songs about this that we teach Sunday school kids, or at least I got taught this. Sadducees are sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. That makes them sad, apparently. This is a world that was almost as crazy and argumentative uh, in, its, in its day, in the first century, as is Christianity in the 21st century, right? On the one hand, you had your liberals, you had these wishy-washy, metaphorical thinking, social justice-minded tribes like the Pharisees. They're like the modern-day equivalents of Unitarians and Congregationalists and Episcopalians, right? The ones who believe all sorts of non-scriptural ideas about resurrection. You had zealots who were interested in, like, this military reestablishment of the kingdom of David. You had crazy messianic folks hanging out in the desert near Qumran, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's this mixed bag of tribes, traditions, everybody's arguing with one another about texts, what they mean. The Sadducees are like the establishment guys, right? The Sadducees are the ones with the money. The Sadducees had these beautiful villas with these magnificent gardens with fountains. The first century joke went that Sadducees didn't have to believe in eternal life because they were already living in paradise. Um, it wasn't exactly that they didn't believe in the possibility of resurrection. It's that according to Sadducees, you can't prove resurrection using the Bible, right? Using their version of the Bible, which is the Torah, the first five books of Moses. Christians know that as the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Sadducees pointed out, quite rightly actually, that there is no such thing as eternal life or resurrection in the Torah. As far as Hebrew scripture is concerned, when you're dead, you're dead, right? The psalmist says it rather clearly. The, the dead do not praise the Lord, neither do any who go down to the pit. The Sadducees took that literally. I had a systematic theology professor in seminary who gave this infamous lecture every year to first-year students on the resurrection, looking at what the Bible actually says about heaven and hell and all of that. It became such an such a infamous lecture that people who had already had the class in previous years would come and sit in the balcony to watch this professor, like, below the minds of the first-year students. So we're sitting there. He would get up to the lecture, and he'd open his notes. He'd sort of pause, purse his lips, and then he'd look up, look up at us and say, as far as the biblical witness is concerned, there is no heaven and there is no hell. When you're dead, you're dead. That, my friends, is biblical theology. <laughs> he was not wrong, right? Christians tend to read our ideas about resurrection and heaven and hell and all of it back onto these older Hebrew texts that actually say nothing at all about an afterlife. It's because Christians come from a tradition that's kind of obsessed with what happens in the afterlife. But the, the book of Job is a great example, right? We heard a little bit of it this morning, these famous lines. We read them at every single funeral in the Episcopal Church. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my, uh, after my awaking, he will raise me up, and in my body I will see God. Job actually says something very different from that in the Hebrew version of this text. Remember, Job is this short story about a guy to whom everything bad that can happen happens, right? And his friends are convinced, Job, you've done something horribly wrong to deserve all of this. And Job keeps arguing back, right? I have done nothing wrong. I am being treated unfairly. I am being treated unfairly by God. 
And Job knows his tradition, right? Job knows he only has one chance to make this case against God because Job knows when you're dead, you're dead. So Job says, oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a record, incised on rock forever. He wants to make sure that this argument that he's advancing against God's unfair, outrageous behavior does not disappear after Job is gone. Job says, I know that my vindicator lives. That's literally what the word redeemer means, right? It's like my relative, right? My cousin, the one one who will defend my reputation after I kick the can. Job says, at least I know that once I'm dead, my champion, my vindicator, is still alive. It's like his name is Shmuel. He lives down on the Jaffa Road. He's a great defense attorney. Get him in here. When I die, go find Shmuel. He will defend my reputation and testify on my behalf. Job knows that is his one last shot. He needs a relative to argue his case because Job knows what my systematics theology professor taught me. When you're dead, you're dead. I was 22 when I'm sitting in class and I'm hearing all of this for the first time, right? My mind is blowing. Um, It kind of rocked my world. I think a lot of my classmates were horrified to to hear this. Many of you may well be horrified this morning to learn that most of the Bible, the the three quarters of the thing, is not only agnostic about the afterlife, in several places the Bible flat out denies that eternity is a thing. I mean, there are historical reasons for this, right? It has to do with ancestor worship. It has to do with a strong invective against idolatry. The point remains, Hebrew scripture on the whole is pretty unanimous on this point, and the Sadducees are not wrong about it. They believe that their Bible says, when you're dead, you're dead. I learned this at 22, and for the first time in my life, I breathed this like existential sigh of relief. Like, I can just stop Like, I can just go to sleep and not wake up again. I don't have to keep doing this thing in various versions of eternal bliss, flying up to heaven and singing with a choir for all eternity. No offense, choir, but I mean, frankly, that sounds kind of exhausting to me. It's like, maybe you read this week, right, that the actor James Dean is being digitally resuscitated in order to play a role in a 21st century film that he never agreed to do. It's like, give the guy a a rest. For some of us, eternal, th- eternal life is like the most exhausting idea anybody ever came up with. Like, this thing keeps going? I have to keep hanging out with you guys, like, forever? You gotta be kidding me. So I hear this at 22, right? The Bible actually says, when you're dead, you're dead. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, there, maybe I was just meant to be a Jew. I don't know. Then Jesus comes along with this whole weird insertion thing. Jesus, as he always does, messes up my whole beautiful scheme. He counters the Sadducees' very literalist argument with another argument of his own from Hebrew Scripture. This is how, how Jews disputed in the first century, right? You advance an argument from Scripture, I counter with another one. And Jesus' argument, I think, is a weird argument, honestly. The idea that because God identifies God's self in Hebrew Scripture as God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that those three guys are hanging around somewhere, I think that's a, a poor proof text, frankly, in uh, a way of proving eternal life with God. But Jesus' larger point is actually kind of beautiful. Jesus is advancing this idea of resurrection in response to, I mean, frankly, the weirdest and most offensively patriarchal hypothetical situation that has probably ever existed. This poor woman that the Sadducees uh, suggest, this poor woman who, because of the traditions of Leverite marriage in her culture, ends up marrying not one, not two, but seven brothers, right? This is one bride for seven brothers. It's a different musical. Before she, before she finally, like, finally shuffles off this mortal coil herself. 
And I can imagine that this woman in the Sadducees fictional test case was probably, would probably be just as relieved as I was at 22 to learn that as far as Hebrew scripture goes, when you die, you just stop, right? Religious law has forced her to marry seven guys in succession, so you better believe she is more than happy not to spend eternity with this highly disease-prone band of brothers. I mean, like, whose, whose wife will she be in eternity? It's like James Dean being yanked back from the grave to star in somebody's vanity project. Like, give the woman a break. She does not need to be anybody's wife anymore. She has spent more than enough time earning her time. But Jesus actually kind of sees that in this, in this test case, which I love about him, right? In Jesus' conception of eternal life, the hypothetical woman who's caught in this series of marriages she did not choose gets a free pass. She does not have to keep serving and bearing children and being given in marriage from one brother to another, she gets to be, Jesus says, kind of like an angel, which is less a a bewinged cherub thing and more like a, a mythical messenger figure, something utterly unlike a human woman. Whatever is to come for Jesus, it's this kind of embodied existence in which patriarchal structures of gender and oppression do not exist. Right? He says they cannot die anymore. They stop dying. I think that's a way of recognizing that like in this life, in this woman's life anyway, and in many of our lives, we die a little bit every day. The world beats us up hard, just like it did Job. Throws horrible things our way, forced marriages, inhumane treatment, all manner of, I mean, injustice groups of male religious leaders who mansplain stuff to poor rabbis using hypothetical women's bodies as test cases to score theological points. I mean, does that sound familiar to you? Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? And Jesus' answer to all of this, I mean, it's not the good news that I longed to hear at 22. It's not when you're dead, you're dead. I kind of long for that to be true, to be perfectly honest. Wouldn't you love to just, like, go to sleep and be done? Like, doesn't that sound great? Don't you want to go be Jewish? What we're handed is something that's a lot weirder and, frankly, a lot more surprising. I'll tell you how it was that I I came to start believing in resurrection. It was thanks to a woman I knew named Sabina. Some of you knew her. She was married to a longtime member of this community, Kelly. Kelly and Sabina met and fell in love. They married. Within a few months of their marriage, Sabina was diagnosed with ALS, and the disease took her quickly and brutally. She was 49 years old. Sabina and I got to know each other pretty intensely, actually, in those latter days as she navigated those, those days. We were both kind of snarky by orientation. I think that's kind of why we bonded. Um, but even as Sabina's speech began to be taken from her, even as her body started to shut down, we would figure out ways to communicate what was, what was going on, what she was thinking, what she was frightened of, what gave her joy. Like me at 22, I don't think Sabina was entirely convinced that this idea that eternal life is like harps and halos in heaven with Jesus is a thing. I don't think she was afraid to die. I think she did have a lot of questions about what lay beyond her last breath. And with Sabina, I felt like I had to, I had to be me. I had to be authentic and meet her where she was. Um, so we shared those questions. We talked about those questions. We found actually a kind of a deep connection in those questions. And in one of our last conversations together, I think it actually was our last conversation together, it was about a week before she died, we were sitting quietly in her living room, Sabina was holding my hand, she didn't have words at this point, language had been pretty much taken from her, Um, she she was ready, her body was shutting down, and I could see these tears coming to her eyes, 
And I don't remember what I said. I hope that it was something gentle and pastoral, but I, I squeezed her hand and she looked deep into my eyes and said as clearly as I have ever heard a voice speak, Nathan, I will see you again. A few weeks later, we gathered in this cathedral and we buried her. We walked down the aisle, we said the words, I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. These words of the service that I've said, you know, a couple hundred times. Maybe the story is just a testament to the power of good liturgy. I don't know. This time, at Sabina's service, I found those words like coming out of my body in a way that felt unbidden and unprompted. I wasn't reading from the script. It was like my body was saying something that it knew to be true, even if my mind and even my heart wasn't ready for it. It was like Sabina was talking through me. And so I got to these words from the book of Job, right? The same words we heard this morning, as mistranslated and misused as they have been by Christians for centuries. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my awaking, he will raise me up, and in my flesh, in my body, I shall see God. I myself shall see, and my eyes behold him who is my friend and not a stranger. I had said those words hundreds of times, and it was like I was hearing them for the first time. I spent the first 30 years of my life under the delusion that resurrection was a kind of theological concept, a function of proof texts and arguments between rabbis and Sadducees, part of the creed, something that Christians are supposed to believe. And at this service, something deep shifted for me. It's taken me like a couple years to figure out what that was. I've had the opportunity to do a bunch of funerals in the meantime. Sabina's husband, Kelly, died a few months after her own. And every time I say these words, these words that my head can't really wrap themselves around, every time I, I see a family who has lost a beloved one or a candle glowing in its stand, every time I place my hands on somebody's urn or somebody's coffin, the place where the body is, I mean, bodies are amazing. They're these beautiful, holy, glorious things, these bodies that, that give and receive love, Bodies that know pleasure and pain, that are racked with grief and anguish and soothed by a lover's gentle caress, our bodies are something. They are not worthless. Sabina's body was racked with pain and disease at the end, and yet there was something there. She held love. She had love and pain etched onto her flesh. I think our bodies are like sponges. Right? Every, every kind and gentle, loving touch that we've ever received, it's like somehow that gets inscribed on our flesh in indelible ink. And the promise is that in some weird and wonderful way, that love that our bodies carry, something about that love, that flesh, gets redeemed. And slowly but surely, thanks to Sabina, I started to believe it. I'm not here to tell you what it looks like, right? I don't, I don't think it's harps and halos on a cloud with Jesus, although who knows, that would be a fabulous cosmic joke if it turned out to be true. And if the heavenly choir is anything like Bruce's choir, I mean, a choir rehearsal that never ends is not the worst thing that I can imagine, let's be honest. I don't know what precisely the resurrection looks like. I've never seen it. I don't know how it works. The mechanics of it are weird and confusing to me. My head can't really believe that that's a thing, that bodies are going to stand up somehow. I don't know. 
This body knows something about that, though. My flesh knows something deeper than what my mind can fathom. For me, that was Sabina's gift. It's one of the most precious gifts I have ever received. Jesus says those who belong to this age marry, are given in marriage, they participate in all the systems, the beautiful ones, the deadly ones. Those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They cannot die anymore. They are like angels. They're children of God, children of the resurrection. I want to know what the heck that looks like. I'm a little scared of that to be perfectly honest. I've got a lot of questions. And I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my awaking he will raise me up and in my body, in this flesh, in this collection of organs and muscles and blood vessels and bones, this body is the thing that gets to see my God. Not somebody else's body. This body, it's the only thing I need. It's your ticket to eternal life, the only thing you need, the holiest thing about you. It's your body. That's what makes it there. That's what knows. Your body is where the resurrection starts.